Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Again, that's www.audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Check it out. Welcome, everybody, to another version of Bill Roden Sports here in uh, New York City, the greatest city on earth, here in Lincoln Center uh, at our ESPN offices, uh, sitting across from the great Jamal Murphy. Murph, what's happening? Same old, same old. Um, happy today we get to talk about one of my favorite sports, college basketball. That's right. You know? And one of your, in fact, you, one of your favorite, one of your favorite people. Uh, on, on the line today, our, our guest today is a great Shaka Smart, who is the head basketball coach of, uh, at the University of Texas. Um, and Jamal, Jamal had been, every, almost every time since we've been doing it, he said, man, we got to get Shaka on the, on the line. So, so, we, so Jamal, since we have Shaka on the line, why don't you roll out the credentials, which are vast. Oh, I mean, you know, definitely one of the best coaches. I was going to say young coaches, but one of the best He's still young. coaches. Definitely young, but <laughs> one of the best coaches in the game. Uh, his third year now at Texas, of course, was at VCU from 09 to 2015. Had a final, was, you know, was in a Final Four in 2011. Uh, 198 and 92 career coaching record. That's 68% of his games. Uh, this year, 4-2 and two so far this season. Had a couple close uh, overtime losses to Duke and mm. Gonzaga over the weekend in mm. Portland. Um, so welcome to the show, Shaka. Welcome. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, great. So, yeah, so what happened with Duke? No. <laughs> 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 oh, man. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, but that was, we, you know, because, A, um, because we like you and respect you, we are really – I, I was really on the edge of my seat, waiting for you to pull that one out. Uh, how would how, you think? I mean, coming off coming off of uh, uh, those those two games, I, I, what you know? How'd you think about those two games? Or what do you think going forward? Well, I think you know, there's a good and a bad side of the coin. The bad side is we didn't win the games. The good side is that we demonstrated that for stretches of games, we can play with pretty much anybody in the country. I mean, Duke's number one in the country, and I thought our guys really did a great job against them for about three quarters of that game. So we just need to get better at learning how to win and how to close out games. You always have a tough schedule uh, beginning, of the, beginning of the year with, uh, you know, these tournaments and stuff. What, what do you think the difference was uh, this year and how you felt you matched up against, you know, other teams outside of your conference early in the season compared to last year? When last year, you know, kind of was, was, a, was a true rebuilding year for you even though it was your second year uh, at Texas? Yeah, Jamal, we actually inherited a, an older team my first year. So we had a bunch of seniors and, and older guys, and we lost seven guys off of that team. So last year, as you mentioned, was our second year, but in a lot of ways we were starting over. And you know, this year and our third year, we finally have a situation where we have some roster stability uh, we have guys that we've recruited, and you know we've got a pretty good mix uh, of some experience and some young guys. We'd like to be a little bit older, but I think everybody would. Uh, and in terms of readiness for this schedule, we just you know we wanted to do everything that we could in the off season to get our guys uh, in a place where we could we could play well and. We knew no matter what happened in our early games that there was going to be quite a bit of growth that we would need to create uh, between the months of November and, and, and December, and that's where we are right now. You, you came on the uh, the national scene with VCU, you know, uh, bright young coach, and you were the, the giant killer. And um, I guess in, in any business, you know, there gets to be a point 
where you earn your way into a situation where you're no longer the giant killer, but you become the giant, and there are all kinds of expectations. So I just wonder, what's the difference now between being in a place like Texas from an outside, you know, University of Texas, all types of resources, big-time football, and, and when you were at VCU, I mean, what, what's, what's the contrast been? How has it helped you, and do you feel any more pressure now than you felt when you were sort of the giant killer? So I think the first thing, Bill, is things were evolving for us even at VCU. So, for instance, the dynamic of the program in my first couple years was different than, you know, by the last year or two before we left. And from the standpoint of what you're talking about, being the giant killer Mm -hmm. or being a team maybe that was expected to do certain things. Um, Then we came to Texas and – it's a whole different level of expectations. But to be honest, and I think most coaches would, would agree with this, you really place more expectations and pressure on yourself internally than anybody could externally. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, you talk about Texas and, and it has a broader reach, I guess. But one of the things we've seen already is the recruiting that you're able to, to do mm-hmm. at Texas. And I mean, you know, already – you know, it looks like you're doing a great job as far as that's concerned. And and this year in particular, you were able to get a top five uh, recruit in Muhammad Bamba. I mean, a, a seven-foot freak freak athlete, freak link, but also a freak intelligence-wise. You know, I, I got a chance to talk to him um, at the Jordan Classic before he even decided where he was going to go. Um, what, what What's your philosophy on recruiting and, you know, how do you feel like you can connect to, to kids? And, and, you know, what, I mean, basically, what's your overall philosophy? Um, and, and is it different at Texas than it was at VCU? I don't think it's so much that it's different from place to place. It's just different who you can be involved with and who you can recruit. And as you mentioned, Texas is a national brand, almost an international brand. Uh, there's been guys that have had a lot of success here and gone on to the NBA, uh, namely Kevin Durant, Marcus Aldridge, mm. Tristan Thompson, Avery Bradley, mm. Miles Turner. So as you know, those sorts of things are huge in, in recruiting. Uh, for me, you asked what my recruiting philosophy is. We try to build relationships. You know, that's one of my favorite parts of being a coach is just getting a chance to get to know young guys and their families and, you know, seeing what makes them tick, seeing if their makeup as a person and as a player is a good fit for what we're trying to do here. We put a lot of value on culture. Mm. We're trying to build a, a, a program that values relationships, growth, and victory. And we have 21 cultural principles that we promote every day so we really want to recruit guys that fit with that. Is there? I mean, do you look for stuff off the court as well? Because I'm, I'm talking. You know, when I talk to Bamba, I mean, it just comes across as, as not your, not your typical, uh, yeah. uh, even just a typical person, much less you know, a, yep. a high school athlete. And you know, when I asked him he, at the time, he was down to four schools that he was considering. You know, the norm, the regular Duke, Kentucky, I think it was Michigan and Texas. And he was going. He was talking about why he was uh, considering each school. And when it came to Texas, he said, "Oh, it's, it's just Shaka. It mm-hmm. comes down to just you know Shaka and the relationship I have with him." Um, so is it? I mean, it just sounded like it's it's much more than than basketball that you focus on. There's no question. I think the makeup of the individual. And the background, the family background, what someone values. Uh, again, we, we spent a lot of time together mm-hmm. uh, with, with, with our guys. I mean, a lot of time. So we want to make sure we get to know what's inside of them. And I think what we're trying to move towards is something that the best teams have, which is a dynamic where a bunch of really good individuals come together as part of something larger than any one person that's as you guys know you guys have followed this sport for a long time it's a fascinating dynamic in basketball because you're talking about the ultimate team game but also a game that's very very much marketed by the individual player at the Mm -hmm. highest level Mm -hmm. 
So it's a it's an interesting dynamic interplay between those two things. I've seen that to be the good. You know, I, I met uh, Muhammad. Uh, in fact, last time you and I met was just like a couple of months ago, that big 12 media day. And I thought we had a pretty brief but eye-opening conversation <laughs> with the players because, you know, I think we kind of got into a little philosophical thing. You know, I think I think Muhammad yep. and uh, Andrew were saying, you know, about the athletes' rights and we're being exploited. I think we both asked, well, hell, you should go down to Prairie View then. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you don't like it here, why don't you go down to Prairie? You know, which is a big thing for me. I mean, uh, just in terms of, um, you know, sort of the black presence in, in, in college basketball. And and uh, this probably is another time for another discussion. But, you know, what these kids are saying, well, yeah, you know, athletes' rights and we don't get enough this. I said, well, you know, you could. You, you chose to do this now. You know, you guys could have gone to Howard. Well, you could have gone to yep. you go, could have gone to Prairie View and taken your talents there. That would have been more significant, than, you know, than you know. Then they kind of thought about it. Well, okay, well, it's not so bad well, after all. If you, <laughs> if you remember, Bill, we were talking about a class that these guys are taking here at Texas, mm-hmm. uh, taught by Professor Leonard Moore. Right. And in that class, they talk all about these type of. Uh, dilemmas, you know, mm-hmm. amateurism at the college level, the student-athlete experience, should student-athletes be paid, mm-hmm. are they exploited? Mm-hmm. Uh, so all those things are discussed in this class, and, and it was really good for those guys to be able to get your perspective, uh, you know, from the background of, of $40 million slaves and other, other research and writing that you've done. Uh, but I think the key, you, you, you nailed it. It's uh, there is a level of choice for all of us in what we do. Yep. And the good thing for these guys is if they surround themselves with people that care about their development and well-being, not just now but long-term, uh, because these guys have the potential to do terrific things in their life, basketball-wise and otherwise, um, then you know they're going to be putting themselves in a really good position to fulfill that potential. Mm-hmm. So you asked about recruiting, I and mean, that's one of the big things that we really try to sell is, hey, we want to surround you with people that truly care about you yeah. and see more than just your basketball potential but some of the other things that we can bring out of you because, believe it or not, those things are all tied together with basketball. Yeah, yeah. yeah one of the things I, you know, I respect so much about you, even you know when you were at VCU, was I said, well, you know, if I had – a young person, uh, you know, a son or, you know, who's playing, I, I trust them with you. Um, you know, particularly young black kid, because like you said, there's so much potential, but it, it doesn't make any sense to go to a place like University of Texas or, you know, these huge schools if you don't get to tap into the huge potential of the school. You know, um, I remember I was at, um, uh, at the University of Texas a number of years ago when the late Barbara Jordan was there. And, you know, John, mm-hmm. Barbara Jordan is this, you know, huge figure. I have to ask her, I said, uh, 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 Barbara, do you know any of the members of the basketball team at Texas? And she didn't. I mean, she didn't, you know, she didn't really, had never met any. And and I asked the same thing of uh, John Hope Franklin, who was a professor at, at Duke. And he was saying he didn't, didn't really come in contact with a lot of basketball players. So I'm always fascinated where it's one thing to be at these huge universities, but it, what does it mean if you don't really get to tap in to, you know, to the magnitude and the breadth of how great these universities are to be all these great black professors who are there? And it just sounds like you're trying to do more. You're, you're trying to get them into the, the larger bloodstream of the university, not just, you know, not just the running and jumping part, you know, side of campus. Well, it's incumbent upon us as coaches, but also some of the responsibilities on the student athletes themselves mm-hmm. to do exactly what you're saying, which is take advantage of all the resources that are here. And when I say resources, I mean, first and foremost, people, uh, you know, these universities just have unbelievable uh, professors and faculty that, that people can, can go to and learn from the challenge that we have, Bill, and you know, this mm-hmm. is that these guys are literally working two full-time jobs exactly exactly so once they get done with those two full-time jobs there's not a lot of time left (laughs) and they really really 
need and want to protect that whatever time is left just to be a normal kid at 19 years old. Mm. Right. We're, we're talking to, uh, of course, Shaka Smart, uh, third-year head coach at Texas. Obviously, you're a, you're a college basketball coach, but first and foremost, you're a teacher, um, you know, with the responsibility of, 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 you know, teaching and coaching these young 18-year-old predominantly black uh, men. And I just wondered what, you know, how do you approach that in terms of in terms of being a teacher, both you know on the court and off the court? Uh, is is it something that is it something that you that's in your mind daily that that you're trying to uh, you know give life lessons off the court as well? And or is it something that you need to Definitely. you know if you have a personal view, is it something <laughs> that you need to back away from and say, hey, right. you know that may that may or may not be my place? And you have to win games, right? <laughs> Well, that's what you're judged on. You're judged on winning games. Right. Uh, but really, the essence of your job as a coach, as you mentioned, Jamal, is the ability to convey lessons to these guys, and that's both on and off the court. And, again, I can't emphasize enough, on and off the court are very related to each other. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're separate. So the way I go about it, Jamal, is, really what was taught to me by the coaches that I had. Uh, I was really fortunate in that as a kid who was raised by a single mom, Mm. I had some coaches that took a real interest in me and filled a void that was there because my dad really wasn't a positive part of my life. And so for me, I hung on everything that those coaches said and did. And (laughs) I learned later on, Bill, that, not every player does that, but uh, you know it was an opportunity for me to just learn from some great role models, and uh, in a couple of their cases, African American role models. Uh, so that's what I try to do for these guys. You know, I try to first of all set the right example, try to make sure that they understand that I love them. Uh, I tell our guys before every game, each guy that I love them. I think that's really important. I think it's important for them to know that there's a genuine care and concern for them as a person before we even go on the basketball court. And then from there, it's it's really a race mm. because we don't have these guys for long mm. to see how fast we can move them forward. And that is the real, real challenge because we live in this microwave culture where you know people, these young people are expected to – get better and, and, and create these unbelievable results so fast. Mm. And that's what we try to go do, but it, it's a race against time. I, you know, that, that kind of leads into, uh, you know, I write a column now, I write for the uh, ESPN's The Undefeated. So I've been writing these series of columns, which I started writing at the time, and what I call the um, supply side of the basketball industry, which fascinates me. You know, the supply side meaning, all like all the summertime stuff, like the camps, the clinics, yep. the hoop group. The I mean, people who never even play basketball are mainly making thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, the division. I've got a nephew coaches Division Three. There's a whole just industry, the Division Three industry. The, I mean, it's 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 immense. And then in the middle of that is this sort of AAU culture, and and so I spoke to George Ravlin about it a couple of days ago, and so he was saying. You know, I was wondering, you know, this, the latest scandal of the, the, you know, with Adidas and and uh, and a coach like Patino basically getting fired and, and people now, the investors, FBI and all that. So I asked George, I said, did he, did, did, I, did he think that this, this shoe scandal, is this sort of what the, the cheating scandal, you know, the, um, what do you call it back in the 50s, the um, point shaving scandal? Could this be this generation's yep. point shaving scandal? And so he said something, well, you know, people, kids are still being bribed, but we bribe them in different ways. You know, now it's got, before you just bribe them to throw a fix again. Now it's so immense, you know, well, you bribe them to what college they go to, uh, what AAU team they play for. Right. Now whether they get to the, who represents them, who. And so I was wondering, I mean, that's a fairly strong statement, but um, I wonder what you think about that. Uh, a, what you thought about the scandal and it's, it's something that's basically short-lived. Um, did it? Did it? Yeah. A, do you think it's short-lived, and do you think it could have a, a very um, 
a, a, a deleterious impact on the industry, on, on the college basketball industry? Well, I think it's already had an impact, and I think it's going to continue to have an impact. And no, I don't think it's going to be short-lived mm. um, because what you have now is the FBI looking into certain activities that were presumed to be, you know, only something that the NCAA uh, and the schools really cared about. So now you have a much more powerful entity Mm -hmm. looking into this stuff. And I think we all know and understand uh, the the extent of, uh, of some of the stuff going on probably was not only limited to the, you know, the people that are being talked about now. Mm. Um, I mean, the reality is, Bill, anytime that you have large amounts of money (laughs) (laughs) involved in in any situation, whether it's a sport or anything else, uh, you know, that's going to bring, that's going to bring a level of corruption. Mm. It's going to bring, uh, you know, more complexity and right now we have an amateur model and this is what these guys were speaking about at media day when they talked to you Mm. um, Mm. that assumes that no matter how good you are at this game uh, that you 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 cannot financially benefit Mm. off of that 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 talent or that value until you forego your amateur status Mm. which of course Uh, can't happen until you're done playing in college. Well, that right there creates a level of tension uh, when a kid is 15, 16 years old and a number one player in the country, Mm. and there's all these entities that are trying to uh, attach themselves to that young man and maybe his family. Mm. And and it seems like one of the things Ravin also said, he said, you know, you know, the 50s were the 50s, but the two most consistent entities from the 50s to 2017 are the parents <laughs> and adults. That those are, st- and, I, and, and he said the adults, you know, have played almost the most distracting element of this. And I wonder how you negotiate that when, you know, as all of us have children, we think our children are the best of anything. But it, it seems like to exacerbate the problem when you're, when you got a seven-foot kid or a kid who you think is great. I mean, I've just seen parents lose their minds and lose all perspective to the terms of kind of, you know, almost kind of selling their kids at the highest bidder. And I just wonder how you, as a sensible human being, as a smart human being, as a, as a black man who really cares about black people, but you also are in this industry, <laughs> you know, how do you negotiate all this stuff to keep your integrity in shape? Well, the reality of it is uh, everyone has their, you know, their own bias. And so, you know, for me, when I go watch my, my daughter play soccer, uh, I'm pretty locked in on her. You know, I'm not really worried about those other kids. <laughs> and, you know, that's the same for any parent. Uh, but again, as I mentioned, when the, see, the thing about basketball is you can identify the best players very early. And there's always late bloomers. There's always Steph Curry's of the world or Michael Jordan got cut from his high school team. But the LeBron Jameses, the Kobe Bryants, the Kevin Garnetts, you can, you can identify those guys at 15 years old. Mm. And so if you can identify them and (laughs) I can identify them, that means everyone else can too, including agents and third parties and runners and, and those sorts of things. And, uh, again, under the current system, those guys and their families are not allowed to benefit financially from that value that they've already shown that they have at that young of an age. Mm-hmm. But that's not real life for some of these folks. And <laughs> you know that and I know that. Mm-hmm. So the, the challenge is how do you create a system that allows them to take advantage of their actual value as an athlete uh, like you have in other sports. Yeah. So, so that creates us a million-dollar question. Let's say we'll make you czar, czar of this empire for a week. How do you do it? I mean, how would you begin to put together a new 
a new system where everybody goes to the beach? Well, that's probably more complicated than (laughs) one conversation. The first thing I would do is uh, recognize that it's impossible for one governing body to oversee this stuff. So you, you, you have to allow the schools to decide what they're okay with and what they're not okay with. In terms of? Um, in terms of, like, right now we have the NCAA rules, right. Right? right? So the NCAA is in charge of overseeing all that stuff. But it, it's, it's really challenging on their part because they, they, they you're talking about uh, the same rule applying to Alabama football that applies to Alabama State football. Mm, It's just a different deal. You know that, and I know that. So I think one of the things I would do (laughs) is regulate some of this stuff and allow schools to decide. You decide who you're going to admit. You decide who you're going to give aid to. Um, Another thing I would do is allow young folks to benefit off of whatever market value it is that they have Mm. Uh, Mm. you know a a, a great college football player great college quarterback you know potentially could go do you know some type of marketing or sign autographs Mm. or whatever it is Uh, those guys are doing that now but they're not allowed to be paid Mm. Um, Mm. I, I, I would let kids benefit off of that market value that they have Hmm. Uh, another thing I would do is I would let anyone go to the draft at any time. Now that's not up to us. That's up to the NBA. Right. Um, but if someone did not get drafted or did not sign a contract or whatever it was, I don't see a problem with why they couldn't come back to college. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I hate that we penalize these guys and put these guys in a position where they have to make this decision. And when they make the wrong one, now there's no out. There's, there's, there, you know, there's nothing they can do. Well, that's, I mean, that's interesting because, you know, some coaches have argued against that uh, saying, you know, one, the practical basketball argument as well, you know, they have to create a roster for the next year and it complicates that. But then also I think Tom Izzo said, well, if you let them go, then, how many other people, uh, you know, with with bad intentions, are they coming in contact with that could that could muddy the waters even further? So, I mean, what do you feel but about see, those? Jamal, I think all this stuff is related. Mm-hmm. I think part of the problem that guys make certain decisions is because, again, they haven't been allowed to take advantage of of the value that they have, and they also do not have accurate information about right. the value that they have. And so if they listen to the wrong information, they're going to make a bad decision. But if they're allowed from day one to understand what value they have as an athlete, I'm not talking about value as a human being, Mm -hmm. but I'm talking about what they can get in an open market for their value as an athlete, then it's much easier for someone to make a good decision. Right. Right. It's also sobering. I mean, you know, uh, you know, that, you know, if there's some way that, you know, that, OK, if you get, you're going to you're not even going to get drafted, you know, but I do like your idea. It is sober. Yeah, it's very so. Well, I mean, our whole industry. Because what you're talking about, Bill, is uh, uh, when you say sobering, the realization that the guys that have major, major value as college basketball players or football players, um, that's actually a small percentage right. of, of overall uh, student-athletes. Right. And, and, again, I'm not talking about value as a person. Yeah, no, right, exactly. So please yeah. don't confuse no, that. No, right, right. I'm talking about people that could go on an open market and command, you know, whatever it is. That's, a, that's you know, that's Mo Bamba on our team. Right, right. That's, uh, you know, obviously got a team like Kentucky or Duke has a lot of them, but it's, it's, not, a, it's not a huge percentage of student-athletes. Right. I thought it was interesting. Andrew Jones kind of thought he was one. Because remember, I told him he looks like. Uh, I thought he looked like um, uh, Westbrook. He kind of looked like Westbrook. <laughs> and he said, "Yeah." And then you say, "Well, you need to play like Westbrook." Right. <laughs> and that's the and that's that's one of the big problems that that the one and done has created a culture. Because of course, all these guys think they're the best or want to be the best, so they get they judge 
they judged against each other. So if one guy wants to, you know, leaves early, Very the true. other guy's saying, "Hey, I need to leave. I need to leave early." It's almost like, right. you know, it's how do you get to a, be a senior? Job. You must be a limit. Yeah, 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 it's a, yeah it's almost, <laughs> well, and it becomes a know, bad thing when you're when you're a sophomore or junior still in college. <laughs> right. The thing that happens is guys feel a level of pressure, mm-hmm. right? That if they haven't left after one year, two years, however many years, they're behind. Mm-hmm. i never forget, I coached a guy named Isaiah Taylor my first year here, mm-hmm. and he was a junior, and he had decided to come back for his junior year. And he used to say to me on a weekly basis, he used to say, <laughs> man, I'm behind, I'm behind, I'm behind. And I used to say, Isaiah, you are where you are. You know, you decide to come back. You're having a great season. Uh, enjoy it, man. You know, be the best you can be. Enjoy college. And then after the season, if you want to go to the NBA, you know, do whatever's next. But it's not about, you know, comparing yourself to anyone else. It's about you moving towards your goal. You know, Bill, you mentioned Andrew. He's made unbelievable progress uh, in the last year. Mm-hmm. And a large part of that is he was able to get accurate information going through the NBA draft, pre-draft process, the combine, the workouts, and they were able to tell him face-to-face, hey, here's where you need to get better. Uh, here's where we see you. Uh, here are some areas that we really like. Here's you know, some areas for improvement. That, that is like gold. That is so <laughs> valuable for these guys. Well, you, and, and you had a guy, you had a one-and-done last year, Jared Allen, who's with the Brooklyn Nets now. Um, well, you know what? What was what was the process like for you with him, and, and what kind of information did you have to you know provide him with? Well, I think for each guy, it, it, it's so different in terms of what their goals are and and what they want. The great thing about Jarrett is that when he came into college, I, I asked him just like I ask every player. So what what are you what are your goals? Like what do you want to get out of this year? And as a freshman, um, you know, a guy who's a McDonald's All-American and highly regarded, you, you always know that it's, a lot of those guys might have a mentality of potentially just wanting to be in college one year. So that's why you ask. And he said to me, he said, I just want to have the best freshman season I can. I want to improve as much as I can. And then after the season, I'll figure everything out from there. And he really meant it. Uh, he, he really was genuine about this. And what he was able to do was get markedly better. I mean, I've never seen a guy get so much better from November when the season started Mm. until March when the season ended. And because he was able to do that, he put himself in a position where he was a lock first-round pick. And Mm. then the decision-making process for him became, really, where do you want to develop? Mm, Do you want to Mm. develop in college? Or do you want to be a first-round pick and go develop over your first two, three years at the professional level? Right. And Easy for Jared, decision. just because of uh, his type, the way he is, he wants to be the best. He wants to play against the best. That was a pretty easy decision for him. Right. And see, you know, it's it's a it's a different world, and that's why the two worlds are sort of in collision on the college campus. Because in normal life, you get better as you get older. You know, I mean, intellectually. You, you learn more no and all that. But in the physical side of what we do, you don't get better with age. You know, with a, every age, every year that goes by, you know, you don't get better. I mean, you, well, it's, like a, it's like a mountain. Yeah, you, you, know, can, you reach the top. Then you, then you start going downhill. You, <laughs> could get, you could get hurt. Right. You get injured. So these two worlds kind of collide. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's sort of a thing. Hey, uh, I, I know you got to go uh, and win some games, but we have two, <laughs> two, two, just two last things for me at least. But, you know, we are talking about what you do if you're a czar. I've really had I've, – I've rethought a couple things, which is not easy for me to admit that I was kind of misguided about a couple things. The first thing was a transfer rule because I used to always say, oh, you know, the athlete's really not fair. The coach can leave and get another job at the same conference immediately while athletes got to sit out. Then I was thinking, well, you know, it's normally when a coach leaves, you're normally a little older. You're probably like, you know, 26 or, you know, when you leave your that first head coaching job and leave, you're usually like 28, 29, you know, 30. That, yeah. yeah, 31, as opposed to being 16 or 17 or 18 and leaving because you're not getting playing time. So I was thinking, well, maybe 
maybe I was a little wrong. Maybe you should. There should be. It's different being 30, 31, 32, going from one head coaching job to another when you're older than being 20 and being pissed off because you're not getting playing time. So I, I, I've kind of rethought that. What do you, what do you think about the, the, the transfer thing? I think it's, it's, it's a really challenging question because uh, in general, I think we all agree kids should be able to go wherever they want to go. Uh, the, ch- the challenge you have, and I think that the number one uh, consideration in this, in addition to the kids, is you necessarily, because of the nature of, of college sports, you have to maintain some type of competitive balance. And if you do open the floodgates of you know, people being able to go wherever they want to go without sitting out, um, now it's just it's going to change things competitively so much. Uh, obviously, for the kids, that makes uh, that creates all kinds of new options. <laughs> right. But as you mentioned, it also may bring some of the negative elements of our game even more into play, because you know we've seen dynamics before where literally a coach is going through a handshake line after a game <laughs> and recruiting a kid off of another team. Wow. And so really? Imagine if yeah. that was – imagine if, if – The handshake if line? Immediately <laughs> eligible. Jesus, the handshake line? The, the, the handshake line. That really? Doesn't, that doesn't sound ethical. Jesus. No, let's see. I never even thought about that shit. You mean <laughs> – at the end of a – you mean yep. – a, a, Damn, really? Yeah, man. You got to do what you got to do. So my point is, it's going to bring more. (laughs) If if you did that, you're going to bring more of the unsavory uh, influences into that component of the game. And what that does is it creates more competitive imbalance because, let's say, school A is is just fine with that. And they they deal with that. They get down with that. But let's say school B doesn't. They don't really – you know, uh, they don't really relate or connect with that sort of thing. They're obviously put in at a competitive disadvantage. Wow. What about, you know, the latest hustle, right, is the fifth-year hustle. What do you call it, the graduate year now? Right, the graduate year. Well, you could do your, mm-hmm. you could be in the minor league. Let's say, for example, at VCU, for example, right? You know, some kid you, you've got, you nurtured him and all that, and then, he, you know, he gets his, he's done with his eligibility, and then he says, yeah, okay, now I've hit the jackpot. I've got one year of eligibility. Let me go play for Kentucky. You know, and and, and we've seen that. Do you like that? I mean, well, particularly now that you're in Texas, you know, it seems like and you, and you have one now, right? I'm um, oh, sorry about that, Jack. I, uh, I can't no. pro- I can't pronounce no. his last name. We, <laughs> but, but what do you think about that? Uh, no, Dylan Ostatowski was a normal transfer. Oh, okay, okay. So I'm on Jamal. Stop sorry it. About that. Um, sorry about that. <laughs> no, but what do you think about but, in, in principle, though? I would say in general, I don't particularly like it. <laughs> uh, again, I think what it does is it puts people in a situation where they're really not all the way in. Um, so, for instance, let's say somebody transfers after their second year from school A to school B. Mm-hmm. They sit out a year, and then they play a year. Well, now they could transfer again as a graduate transfer, which you're talking about. Right, right. Um, and so now they go to school C mm. uh, because it's, like you said, it's, a, it's almost like a free opportunity to go wherever you want. Um, again, I think that creates a level of competitive imbalance for some of the programs, maybe at the mid-major level uh, or, or low-major level, that are trying to build – and, you know, I know that Jay Bills of the world might say, well, too bad. You know, figure it out. That's your job as a coach. But if what we're fighting for, what we want, is to have a level of competitive balance, I do think that that, that grad transfer deal does take away from that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Jamal. No, go ahead. You know, the, the, the last thing for me, well, we could do this for another two hours because this, this is stuff I love. But the other thing, you know, I run the sports and recreation program at my church up in Harlem. We got these kids, you know, 8 to 14. And I have some coaches come in sometimes as scouts. And, of course, they say, okay, who wants to go to the NBA? So, of course, everybody raised their hand, you know. And my, I used to tell kids, you know, well, listen, let me give you some statistics out of, you know, 
eight hundred thousand kids who play basketball, only only three percent. You know, the, you know, you know those numbers. But then I was thinking, well, yep. well, wait a minute, well, well, wait a minute. If somebody told me when I was a fifteen-year-old sophomore in, at Chicago in high school, who wants to work for the New York Times? And I raised my hands, oh, come on, forget that. You know, so I think, wait a minute, somebody has got to be that one in a million. Somebody's got to be one. So maybe my message should be different. Maybe my message, how do you get to be that one in a million? Maybe that's the question. So, so and, and maybe how do you get to be the one in a million? To listen to people like Shaka Smarter, to listen to, you know. So so I've kind of changed my perspective from, uh-oh, here are, the, here are the statistics. They're daunting to, wait a minute, somebody's got to walk across the stage and be that one. How do you get to be the one million, that one in a million? What do you think about that? <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, I think the challenge that we have in our society is that particularly with young black athletes, uh, we have set up for them, especially in our sport, because there's so few players at the, at the NBA level. We've set up a very, very unrealistic uh, version of success and failure. And so the, the one thing that I, I would love to, to, to change in terms of the narrative is that if you don't make the NBA, that you're a failure. Right. Um, right. Because right. you talked about those percentages, and there's no question, if you have a chance to be in that 1% or 2 or 3%, we want to do everything we can day and night to help you get there. But if you don't, man, there's a lot of other things that are, that are very, very powerful and, and possible that you can do with your life, and you're not a failure. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and so right. that's probably right. the biggest thing I would say about that is just this, this, this notion of success and failure, trying to, to flip that around a little bit. Right. Well, I was going to take it back to, back to the team and to the, to the here and now. Uh, Texas 2017 <laughs> and the and the basketball team. How how do you feel about this team? I mean, I saw, you know, I saw, I saw you guys early this year on TV. It looked a lot better than than last year's team. Like you said, last year's team looked so young. Um, I mean, it was really noticeable. Uh, I know, obviously, uh, coach talk is you know just game by game, and we'll get to where we get. But do you have any kind of feeling about this team this early? I think this team has a chance to be a terrific team in time uh, if we're able to adhere to our cultural principles that, that we talk about every day. Uh, in terms of how good we really can be, I think defensively we could be as good as anyone. Uh, we have really good pieces, uh, but we've got to commit to that on a play-by-play basis. I think if our guys have a willingness to share and pull and play for one another. Um, I think we could be a, a very, very good team that could be dangerous in March. But the thing about us, because over half of our team is new this year, uh, is we're really a work in progress. And we've got to make sure over the course of the next several weeks we keep getting better. And then what about, what about Bamba? Um, I mean, like I said, a top five high school talent. Um, has mm-hmm. has all kinds of skill and, and natural ability. What's it been like to coach him in this short period of time? And, and what are you, where are you looking for him, for him to improve as far as this season goes? He's fun to coach. He, like you said, he's a great kid. There's a lot of depth to him that goes well beyond basketball. Right. He's extremely thoughtful, and he's a guy that it's it's enjoyable just to have conversation with him even if it has nothing to do with the game basketball wise his best basketball is way ahead of him mm-hmm. I, I won't get to coach <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the best version of him that's right. like 28 29 years old right. so what we're trying to do is aggressively move him forward during the time that he's here and I think one of the things that's hard about you know, our game and coaching in our game is we're really in a lot of ways trying to get these guys to do things that they're not quite ready to do. Mm. Uh, But (laughs) that's the way the system's set up. You know, the best players are here for one year. Uh, The really, really good players are here for two years. So what we're trying to do with Mo Bamba is get him to be better than Tim Duncan was as a freshman. Right. Mm. Even though – 
Tim Duncan was really good as a freshman, <laughs> but it was just different in 1993. Right. Well, you come into college and most guys are there for much longer. Mm. Um, so, but the end result uh, for a guy like Tim Duncan is obviously a 19-year career, five NBA championships, That's right. uh, top 10 player of all time. Right. I think Mo would take that. Right. So, are you, so saying, are you saying you can we, develop in college? <laughs> yeah, of course you can develop in college. It's just something that nowadays, because of the way that the NBA drafts on potential, uh, you know, not a lot of guys do. But there's great examples of guys who, who did and have become really good players. Right. Do you ever wonder what it would be like to, to coach – at a professional level, and what I'm saying, I, I know you're committed to Texas for the next 40 years, but 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 you know, I just wonder what it'd be like to coach some great athletes, like in every position. You know, like some kid was saying uh, at the University of Alabama, they put the NFL. He said, "Oh, my Alabama team could beat the worst team in the NFL." I said, "You must be out of your mind. You get beat by a hundred yeah. points by the worst NFL team." I'm just wondering what it'd be like to coach, and I mean every player. It's like a great player. I mean, you know, I, I just wonder, do you ever wonder what that would be like? Well, I worked for Billy Donovan at the University of Florida, and so I, I love following him and watching what he's doing with, with Oklahoma City. I mean, he's got a fascinating dynamic there with having the three superstar players. Yep. But uh, I just have respect for how good the players are at <laughs> that level. I mean, they're, they're just so unbelievably talented. And I think the, the, one of the differences that people don't think about between college and the NBA is that when a guy's played eight or ten years, he's literally played in close to a thousand games, hmm. you know, if you count the preseason and the playoffs. And the difference between that and us coaching guys that have played five or 35 or 75 games, <laughs> that's such a difference, <laughs> just experientially. Um, but yeah I, I, I'm a big fan of the NBA I love following it um, and you know for now just enjoy my favorite thing is watching guys that we've coached go to that level and have success That's right. uh, last thing Sean, what would you tell young coach just sort of the teaching part of Bill Roden on sports what would you tell that you're now becoming a mentor I don't know at what age like we call you say Shaka Smart, the young coach. When do you not become a young coach? What what age is when when you cross when you cross ten more years to go? Before, before <laughs> they say not the young coach, the middle aged coach. What, I don't know when that line is. I was always oh, so a bright young coach. Then when you cross that that line between the bright young coach to the middle aged coach, you better win. Right, right. The more winning you do, the faster it happens. <laughs> right, right. But my question so is, when, what you're asking, when does that happen? Well, right. yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I, was, I had a I had a better question, but I'm just, what had you thought about that when you when you look at each birthday? So at what point do you cross that, you know, cross into the River Jordan, the land of Jordan? When do I become like the I'm not the young coach anymore? <laughs> I, no, I haven't really thought. I mean, tell you what, in this in this profession, you learn to, to take it one day at a time. So, <laughs> right. um, you know, I I think that it's it's amazing that some of these guys coach into their seventies. And, and still obviously succeed at a very, very high level. Uh, it, it'll be interesting when you get to the next generation or two if guys are going to be able to coach for that long because, uh, you know, I've I've been doing this as a head coach now. This is my ninth year. Mm. It, it, it's changed even in the last decade mm. in terms of with technology now how much it's a 24-hour-a-day job. Mm. Mm. So what would you tell young coach? I've got a uh, my my nephew as a coach at Middlebury, an assistant, and you know he mm-hmm. goes to come to coaches a convention, and you know you kind of want that next year. What do you tell when when now young coaches come to you and kind of ask for career path advice? What what do you tell them in terms of how to kind of get to where you are? What do you what do you tell them? Well, Don't. I think the first thing is to know what you really want mm-hmm. and know why you coach. I think that's so incredibly important uh, because if what you want is to impact people, if if what you want is uh, the relationship, the mentoring, uh, you can do that at a variety of levels. Uh, So I think it's really important to know why it is that you want to coach. Then from there, you know, you, you have to know what it is that's your philosophy in coaching, like what, 
how are you going to go about this? How are you going to approach it? And that's not just for head coaches. That's for guys that are assistant coaches. Um, and then once you know that, you can try to align yourself with people that are like-minded and see things in a similar way. Because as you guys know, there's so many different ways to skin a cat and coach it. Mm. And uh, it's one of those things where you want to make sure that you're around someone that can cultivate uh, the approach that that you choose to have. Um, So I tell young guys that I think the work ethic piece of it, the humility part Mm. uh, is so very important because you, you have to understand, you know, when you're, when you're coming up in the business that you're, you're a small, smart part of something bigger than, than, than yourself. But then the longer you go in the profession, you have to continue to understand that. Um, so those are a few things I, I usually share with guys. Hey, our guest has been the great Shaka Smart, head basketball coach, men's basketball coach at the University of Texas. And if you've been listening to this, you really understand why he's probably one of the most fascinating uh, uh, coaches probably in the industry. Shaka, it's been really great, great talking to you, man. We could do this for hours. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for coming on. You, you've been great. And good luck, by yeah, the way. Yeah, good luck. Thank you. Well, thank you to uh, you, Bill, and Jamal, and Aaron. Thank you guys for having me. Look forward to coming back sometime. Absolutely. After you, after you cut down the Nets' Final Four, remember us, man. I'm saying <laughs> I ain't got time. <laughs> hey, we're going to meet at the Final Four, right, Bill? Absolutely. Hopefully, we'll meet with you cutting down the Nets. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. All right. Hey, Charlie. Thanks, thanks so much, Shaka. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.